I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Right. Okay. I'm just delighted to be here. I think to celebrate this marvellous book, The Levelers Revolution, I'm of the generation whose undergraduate years were dominated by the writings of Christopher Hill. That's why I became a Civil War specialist and a Civil War historian, because I fell in love with the period through Hill's advocacy of the idea that it was the central period in English history, not the Tudors, however many pretty velvet clothes they wore, not the Stuarts, however posh they looked, but actually the ordinary people that fought in this war and by fighting in this war came to think about what they wanted the war to be about. And this, I think, is something that I, as a foreigner, I wasn't born in this country, was very struck by. I came to this country expecting to find Civil War memorials everywhere. I was expecting to find people who were patting themselves on the back in rather the way the French and the Americans do for having invented modern democracy. I was expecting to find a people who said to themselves, perhaps on annual festival days, it's absolutely wonderful that the levelers existed because they were the very first people in modern history to speak up for one man, one vote. Okay, not one, one person, one vote as yet, though I'm going to talk about women levelers in a minute, but one man, one vote. Did I find any of that? Not on your Nelly. So I'm particularly delighted to see such a large crowd here tonight. It really upsets me that the people of England don't pride themselves more on the extraordinary things that their forefathers achieved and achieved very much in the teeth of all opposition. I think I'm pretty safe in saying that everyone in this room may have been a bit gobsmacked by the American election result. And in saying that, I want to say what we can learn from the levelers is this. You may get beaten. You may get knocked down. You may even get shot but that doesn't end the fight. You go on because one day, one fine day, somebody will take up that standard from your hand and they will take that cause forward and they will succeed. Don't ever give up. And I think that's what we can learn. My 16-year-old daughter got up this morning in a state of complete despair. We've lost again, she said. Not that unreasonably in that she's seen a Conservative government elected and the Brexit referendum. We've lost again, she said. 
Yes, I said, we've failed again. Try again, fail again, fail better. And that's exactly what the levelers did, which is what I love about them. But the other key thing about the levelers, which may typify the people in this room far, far less, they didn't know that they were going to be leading a revolution from the get-go. Now, this is where John and I disagree in a fruitful, healthy, mutually respectful way. <laughs> we disagree about how the leveler movement came about. We disagree about what its origins were. We agree completely in our reverence and respect for its members. So it's important to register the agreement as well as the disagreement and for this not to become one of those occasions where the left tells itself apart before your startled gaze. <laughs> so instead, what I want to say is, for me, the really intriguing thing about the levelers is that no one in 1642, except a very few people like Henry Martin, the Member of Parliament, thought that they were fighting a war for an English Republic. The vast majority of people thought that they were fighting a war for other reasons. They thought that they were fighting a war to restrain an overmighty monarch who'd been badly advised by his counsellors. They thought that they were fighting a war against popery, against overmighty Catholicism that they felt had been introduced to their beloved Church of England, and they did love it, whatever you think of organised religion. They loved it, and they loved it politically as well as in terms of religion. Their beloved Church of England by his bride, Henrietta Maria, and his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. And they also thought that they were fighting for parliamentary sovereignty. And this is where I hope we're touching a nerve in the British polity in this day and age. The war proper didn't break out the shooting war until 1642. But before that, there were a good nine months of serious unrest in London, where apprentices massed in the streets shouting, Prentices and clubs, Parliament, Parliament, privileges of Parliament. Something that I think we just heard the High Court say something very like only last week. Um, and that, that moment where they decided, some of them decided, that Parliament was where sovereignty ought to lie, that was the moment where they really started thinking about the polity that they had. Why were they thinking about it? Because Parliament hadn't been summoned for many years, and unless Charles needed money for a war, because Charles I was trying to rule on his own. This was called the personal rule. Once the shooting war started, men started wondering why they were dying, what they were dying for. And this was facilitated by one man in particular, Oliver Cromwell, who issued to his men, this may sound very bland, but I promise you it isn't, psalm, um, psalm booklets. And they were the hotter kinds of psalms that were all about God smiting the Philistine and God arming the army of the Lord. People gathered around campfires to sing them. And as they did that, they started talking about what kind of polity the Lord would design were he to come back and animate them all as they hoped he would. And they decided the kind of polity he would design was something very, very different from the kind of polity that had existed before the war. In many, many conversations around those campfires, initially in William Waller's army, but crucially in the new model army that was formed after successive parliamentarian armies had been destroyed. You see what I mean about perseverance? Okay, was formed basically from the rejects, the dregs of society, the people that were regarded as completely useless. The royalists thought they'd wipe the floor with it in seconds. They called it the new noddle army because it didn't have any posh people in command of it. So they were perfectly certain that it couldn't possibly succeed. Were they ever mistaken? 
you think last night was an upset? You should have seen the Battle of Navy. Um, it was an incredible army. It was structured. It was well-disciplined. The men in it wanted to know what they were fighting for, what they were shedding their blood for, and they sat down and tried to work it out. They sat down and tried to think to the crew the kinds of political forms they wanted to see after the war had ended. And because of that, they came up with a bunch of pamphlets, because that's what you did in those days. You didn't tweet, you didn't do a Facebook status update, you wrote a pamphlet. Because Parliament had lifted censorship in London, to very large extent, it was perfectly possible for people to get their ideas out through pamphleteering. They sort of tried to reimpose it when they realized the kinds of ideas that people were going to be circulating, because the kinds of ideas that people did and were circulating were seriously radical in a way that the army high command, even in the new model army, really hadn't expected. They'd expected people to be enthusiastic about being led by people like themselves, gentlemen with a lot of land, and they were the only people, remember, who could vote back in those days, people who were either rich or had a lot of land. That's what parliament was made up of. That's what the electorate was made up of. But suddenly you have all these common privates and sergeants sitting around discussing matters, and they say, you know what, this is rubbish. We're good enough to be in the army. Why aren't we good enough to also have a say in how we're governed? Are we not having a say now, here and now on the battlefield, by the fighting that we're doing, by the blood that we're shedding? Doesn't that entitle us to something? And as soon as they started saying that kind of thing, they started seriously looking back at their own past as a, as a country and at what other people had said about the British polity. And they looked at all kinds of people ranging from Machiavelli to scientists. And they also looked back at the ancient world because they knew that polities in the ancient world hadn't straightforwardly been monarchies. They looked at the Italian principalities. They started looking for other models. They didn't all do that, of course. A few of them were better educated and more literate than the others, and they filtered information through. But everyone respected the idea that these things had to be discussed and debated and worked out collectively in a group. And then a really striking thing happened. I'm cutting a lot of military history out here. A really striking thing happened, and that was the army revolt. Really interestingly, and I bet you that the current government wouldn't do this. I mean, mostly when you have an army revolt, the result is that you just shoot the rioters, end of. Is that what Oliver Cromwell did? No, he didn't. I mean, okay, he could be a complete creep, but he and his um, son-in-law, um, Henry Ireton, actually um, organized what we now know as the Putney House Debates in order to sit down and listen properly to the grievances of the men and try and persuade them that the kind of polity that Cromwell and Ireton thought was good was better than the leveller idea, which had by then evolved into a one-man, one-vote universal suffrage system with all kinds of other amendments too, like that law cases should be tried in English so that people could understand the crime with which they were being charged. That kind of simple stuff. But it you know, wasn't the case back in the day. Um, and so Cromwell and Ireton listened to their grievances, didn't immediately round them up and shoot them all. And that in itself was a really, really remarkable event. Moreover, historians didn't know about it until the middle of the 19th century when the shorthand record of the debates was discovered. So all those early histories, people like um, Clarendon's History of the Rebellion, not that Clarendon would have cared anyway, but histories like that were written without any knowledge that they'd even been the Putney House debates. Okay, so this was a really significant moment. And then furthermore... The other really significant thing that I really want to stress tonight and that seems to me really pressing to say is the role of women in the level of movement. And today we've seen the defeat of one of the most important women political candidates that I've seen in my lifetime, who actually stood up for election herself 
rather than sneaking into her party leadership when it had already gained power. And we've also seen an election strongly dominated by gender politics. And one of the forms of gender politics that we've seen surfacing is the idea that Hillary Clinton is not really a politician because she's mostly famous as the first lady, as the president's wife. Well, hello, the levelers also had wives and their wives were also politically active. Indeed, their wives were much more politically active than the early historians, even Christopher Hill, I bow reverently, realized. Their wives, people like Elizabeth Lilburn and Mary Overton, were the ones that kept the pamphlets rolling out, both physically in terms of actually taking the risk of keeping the presses rolling in London and getting arrested for it too, and also in terms of writing the pamphlets. So these women were directly involved in the political movement that was the level of movement. They weren't just standing around like wives, washing John Lilburn's shirts, sorting out Richard Ovenden's prison laundry. They were actually thinking through the issues as well. And I believe that it's right to say that it's from that that we get the first stirrings of English feminism. Now, I don't want to mislead you. Neither Elizabeth Lilburn nor Mary Everton was a feminist. Not even Catherine Chidley was a feminist, really. Um, but the thinking that was going into those pamphlets, the thinking that the poorest tea hath a life to live as much as the greatest tea, as Rainborough memorably puts it, that thinking eventually led people to say, hang on a minute. Why is it okay for women to be ruled by their husbands if it's not okay for working men to be ruled by their lords or by the king? Why is it okay for women to be virtually enslaved to their husbands, to own no property without their husbands say so? Why is it okay for women to be really obeying their husband's orders and second-class citizens with no rights under the law whatsoever? That thinking also began with the English Civil War. The irony is it mostly began among right-wing women, quite posh, rich women. And it's an oddity that the level of women and the level of movement actually managed to inspire feminism in quite a different group of women altogether. But nonetheless, they did inspire it. Because once you start thinking, well, why do things have to be like this? Couldn't they be like something else? There's really no end to the possibilities that you come up with. And that's the level of movement. And I want to say that I don't want to say the martyrs at Burford Church. It's not that I don't venerate the martyrs at Burford Church, but that's that long history of left-wing failure. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And, and though that's really important, I think we should also register how hugely successful they were in impressing their ideas on the polity such that they never really went away again, despite all kinds of pressures and oppressions and censorships. And it's for that reason that I would urge you all to read John's book, Everyone in Britain needs to know about these people. These are the most important people in our history. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Diane, um, for that introduction. Um, one of my fellow historians um, wrote a, a blog at the time that uh, Wolf Hall was on television um, uh, trying to answer the question, why do we talk so much about the uh, Tudors and not about the English Civil War? And he gave a number of reasons why that was. The first reason was um, because it's too complicated. Uh, so I'm especially uh, grateful for Diane to give that overview of the, uh, of the English uh, Revolution in such masterly uh, concision. 
Um, I'm going to talk about the, the, the Leveller's contribution to that, uh, to that experience. And uh, I'm going to talk about them as the precursors of really um, every radical political movement that's come afterwards. And some of the practices um, that they were centrally involved in are things which any radical still has to do. When the uh, censorship broke down, this, this society in, before the English Revolution was a, a, a society in which the, the crown and the church uh, controlled absolutely what was printed um, through the stationers' company who had a monopoly on all printed material. You couldn't print a book in English abroad and bring it into the country. That was illegal, and you couldn't print without license. And the people who did were caught and persecuted for doing so. John Lilburn, the, the most famous leveller, um, was, and long before he was known as a leveller in the 1630s, um, was caught uh, importing. Uh, radical religious uh, pamphlets uh, from Holland. Uh, he was uh, tried by the court of uh, Star Chamber, a prerogative, a royal prerogative court. Uh, he was sentenced uh, to uh, prison in the Fleet Prison, and he was uh, taken out, tied to the back of a cart at uh, the Fleet Prison, which is the eastern end of Fleet, where the eastern end of Fleet Street is now. And he was beaten with a three-thonged, uh, knotted leather whip. Uh, 500 times uh, as he was dragged from there to Westminster where he was put in the, the stocks and while he was still in the stocks he was still throwing the illegal pamphlets out of his coat pocket <laughs> and making speeches until he had his mouth gagged uh, by the jailer. It was that experience which made him famous to the, to the London crowd. He was uh, for his defence uh, that he shouldn't be forced to incriminate himself in a in a prerogative court, most of the people convicted in the courts were, and here's an echo, uh, were uh, convicted on the basis of their own confession of a forced uh, confession. And he said that no freeborn Englishman should be forced to do this. And that's where he got uh, the, the kind of name by which he was known, uh, freeborn uh, John Lilburn. So um, these people, um, as soon as the censorship broke down, um, they began to produce very quickly um, very radical petitions and pamphlets um, from still illegal and hidden uh, presses. Um, uh, Richard Overton, another of the Leveller leaders, was, we know now actually, we, we, didn't, we didn't know this until comparatively recently, but a, an absolutely brilliant piece of research by a historian called David Como uh, traced the, the fractures uh, on uh, the in the the lead print, um, so that he could uh, um, find out which particular pamphlets were produced by which particular press, mm -hmm. and there was an illegal press called the Kloppenberg Press because it was previously thought to have been based in Holland, and that the illegal pamphlets were smuggled into Britain. And he found that actually it was already very very early on by 1640 already operating in London and owned by Richard Overton and his co-printer Peter, uh, Peter Cole, and they were already producing uh, John Lilburn's pamphlets. And one of the things, um, I, I, I think I, I, we probably won't disagree about, about whether or not the Levellers were the kind of organisation that they became. They certainly weren't at the beginning. And part of my, my whole case in the book is to show how a revolutionary process both radicalises itself and the people 
at the heart of it. So they aren't the same people with the same ideas at the beginning of this process as they become later. They don't have the same organizational capacities early on that they have later. This is a process of emergent properties, as the physical scientists call it, a process, not an event. And I'm keen in the book to trace that process. But one of the very early uh, forms of association is specifically around the question of illegal printing. If you look very early on in 1640, 1641, 1642, this is years before the levelers become known as levelers in 1647, a core group of these people, the uh, Catherine Chidley, who we've heard, and her son, Samuel Chidley, who becomes the, le the leveler uh, treasurer as they become a much more coherent organization uh, later on, uh, William Larner, who's a key figure in, uh, uh, in leveler printing, and his, and his wife, Ellen Larner, uh, both jailed together later on for their uh, part, part in illegal uh, printing. Uh, Henry Hills mm -hmm. and John Lilburn are linked together in a network uh, where the most closely association is this business of illegal pamphlet production and illegal uh, petitioning. Mm -hmm. And that, we're still doing it. There isn't a political movement in the country today that doesn't still produce pamphlets, that doesn't still petition. And the new technology hasn't killed this. It's given it a rebirth of as and change.org. Um, yeah. The levelers would have understood completely yeah. what was going on here. Yeah. And they would have found it amazing that there is a number 10 website where if you get 100,000 signatures, you oblige the parliament to debate the issue. Mm -hmm. Or at mm -hmm. least there's a, an unenforceable recognition that that should be the, should be the case. That they would have recognized mm. the two-faced nature of parliament. They were very, very familiar, uh, very, very familiar with. So, um, I'm concerned to look at them in this way. The book is about them as an organization. A lot's been written and rightly, and I, and I talk about it as well about the, the novelty and the forcefulness and the, the early formation of basic democratic ideas, many of which we're still, we're still fighting for. But, I want to talk not just about that, but about how they mobilized people to achieve that, how they formed an organization. What were the concentric circles stemming out from the business of illegal printing, petitioning, and mass mobilization at Westminster to try and enforce those petitions? And that's very often where the women come in. They were people who were mobilizing. There were petitions specifically by women with women captains in each ward of London uh, who would have on the bottom of the petition, this is how you see it moving from just a question of print to a question of political mobilization, where it would say, this petition, all who support this petition meet, for instance, in the piazza at Covent Garden to head down to Westminster to present this, this petition. And of course, when this took place, it was a massive, often a massive contested process. They weren't the only people doing this. The conservative forces were doing this. The peace petitioners who wanted an end to the war and an end to the conflict, they were doing this as well. Uh, the royalists, certainly in the early days, the book opens with the, the, uh, the uh, conflict in the December days between um, the parliamentarian uh, petitioners and the supporters of Charles I. John Lilburn was involved in a physical fight in Westminster Hall uh, where the, uh, uh, the uh, cavalier supporters of Charles I uh, were trying to defend the monarch's prerogative and uh, they were um, mobilizing to try and beat back the parliamentary petitioners. Lilburn arrives with seamen 
carrying clubs. They have to rip up the tiles from Westminster Hall, pull them off the wall. There's a fight in Westminster Hall. Um, Lilburn disarms one of them, takes them to the bar of Parliament. Parliament the parliamentarians let him go and he re-engages in fighting back again in the hall. So this, you imagine this process. You imagine even just Lilburn's life, imprisoned and whipped and punished, released uh, by Parliament at the beginning of the, rev uh, the revolution on the basis of a speech made by Oliver Cromwell, then uh, an unknown, uh, a relatively unknown MP in the, in, in the chamber, then involved in this process of battling the, the, the supporters of the Crown in Westminster Hall, going on to serve in the New Model Army. Um, uh, Lilburn is um, uh, enlists. Um, when really early in the Civil War, the King's forces are trying to invade London, the Battle of Turnham Green and Brentford. Mm. Uh, Lilburn is in the front rank of this. Mm. He's captured uh, by the Royalists, taken to the King's uh, new capital in Oxford, put on trial uh, for, uh, for his life. Uh, debates, this always strikes me as it, that it should really be in a novel. You, you, when you read it, you imagine this, this can't possibly be happening. But he's debating with Prince Rupert in Oxford whether or not he should lose his life for taking uh, a part in the, in the early fights against the, uh, against the, uh, against the king's army. Um, he's only freed because he managed to smuggle out a letter uh, to his supporters in London, which is printed up as nearly everything Lilburn wrote was one of the one of the sort of conservative elements in the parliamentary side uh, later said Lilburn every time he says something, it goes straight to the printers and he 's on the streets before uh, before morning. The same guy actually uh, Thomas Edwards, the Presbyterian heresy hunter, mm -hmm. was appalled that richard overton 's pamphlets were turned into ballads, a two part ballad, mm -hmm. and sung to the tune of the Jolly Sailor in the streets <laughs> of, of, uh, of London. These were people who were involved in mass politics. Lilburn is only freed because the Parliament uh, at the very last moment takes the decision that if Lilburn is executed in Oxford, they will execute all the royalist prisoners that they uh, have uh, in London. Um, the only way this message um, gets to Oxford is because Elizabeth Lilburn, although she's heavily pregnant, um, gets on a horse, uh, rides through the checkpoints both of friends and foe, and reaches Oxford just in the nick of time to deliver this threat from the Parliament and free uh, and free Lilburn. So we're, we're, I'm just trying to essentially give you a feeling for what it was like to be making a revolution, what it was like to be at each point as the, as the revolution developed at its cutting edge. Um, they didn't start off with these ideas, only really Henry Martin. Henry Martin yeah. is a Leveller ally and an MP, the only MP who's a really systematic ally of the Leveller. He's a great uh, figure, one of my favourite uh, figures, in, because he was a, um, partly because he was a renowned wit. Um, he, it was said that he could turn the whole House of Commons uh, with, a single, <laughs> with a single speech. Um, very famously, um, when there was a motion in the House of Commons that the uh, the nodders should be put out, that is, the MPs that were falling asleep should, <laughs> should be chucked out of the House of Commons. Uh, Martin moved an amendment saying, uh, no, the noddies, the boars that put them to sleep, also ought to be, also ought to be chucked out of the House of, House of Commons. When the, uh, when the revolution uh, was at its peak and we were abolishing um, 
I hope um, only for the first time, the House of Lords in this country. The motion read that the House of Lords uh, should be abolished as useless and dangerous. Martin moves an amendment saying it should be abolished because it was useless but not dangerous. Um, <laughs> which, funnily enough, wasn't true then but might possibly be true now. Um, so th- uh, these people, they were in the, in the business of organised revolutionary mobilisation. And much of what they did, we're still doing. And that's what makes it come alive, uh, I think, uh, to a new generation. Every generation that discovers the levellers can see something um, of the political world around them and something of what it means to be against authority, uh, to face uh, enormous penalties for being so. In the the 20 years of uh, the high point of his political activity, uh, there were only four in which John Lilburn wasn't in prison for at least uh, some of the time. He wrote uh, either in prison or with the immediate threat of imprisonment hanging over him all the time. At the peak of their activity, all the level of leadership, Overton, Lana, um, even Martin for fighting uh, in, the, in the House of Commons with, uh, with a member of the House of Lords, was imprisoned uh, for, a, a short, uh, for a short period. Um, so they knew what it was like um, to risk um, their lives in battle on the battlefield, many of them, uh, in political activity for the purposes of time to change and transform fundamentally uh, the world around them. They came to that realization. I'd say they didn't start off with it. You know, I think one of the most profound things that's said about any revolution, and it's said about the English Revolution by Oliver Cromwell, is that you never travel so far as when you don't know where you're going. And they didn't know where they were going at the beginning, but they came to know what they wanted through the experience, successive phases and shifts in, uh, in, in, the, in the revolution. Perhaps if we simply pass resolutions, the king will see our point, but he didn't. Perhaps if we fight the king to a neutral standstill, he will agree to be re-enthroned on our terms, but he wouldn't. Perhaps if we fight him to the finish, then he'll agree, but he didn't. And as the revolution successively ratchets to more radical positions, the levellers are always at the forefront of the next argument. They're always the people who put the argument for the most radical form of activity at any phase of the revolution. And gradually, they self-identify and coalesce together as an organisation with a political structure and with a political programme. The Agreement of the People that was debated at Putney um, was the first written constitution um, ever proposed for this country, but also it was the first party political program, in many ways, of a group of people uh, bound together by a collective desire to advocate it. Um, so I guess that's a little bit of an introduction to why the levellers are an exciting, interesting, uh, dynamic, uh, and in some ways modern uh, group, a group of people. They ultimately failed, not because there wasn't a revolution. There was a revolution, and there wouldn't have been a revolution, in my view, if they hadn't played their part. But it wasn't the revolution that they wanted. It wasn't democratic enough for them, fundamentally. It was a republic, but it was a military uh, republic, not a democratic republic, which was what they were really, really after. But I think Lilburn had the right of it when he said, though we fail, our truths prosper. John, it's it, it's for the benefit of the audience. All right, fine. Uh, it's just that 
you you excite everybody to the moment. What happens to them all at the end? Because in a way, you keep talking about the fact that they're not successful in their demands, but they also were defeated actually in themselves as an organisation, and it just would be useful to know what then happened. Um, well, for me, the crux of it is this, that um, in by the end of the First Civil War, debate opens up about what kind of society we're going to have, and that's crystallised at Putney, but it's, it's society-wide and it's going on all the time in the New Model Army in London, across the country. And there's a second civil war, and by that time, um, the choice is fairly stark. Either uh, the king is going to be re-enthroned, as one of the petitions from one of the regiments of the new Ar- uh, model army put it, that we are under threat of a re-enthronement of Charles I. In other words, there will be a counter-revolution. Everything that happened up to that point would have been rolled backwards, and the old order would have been re-established, and um, no doubt some of the things that happened to the uh, parliamentary side when the restoration happened in 1660 would have happened, but probably a lot more bloodily and a lot more extensively um, in 1649. Or the revolution was going to abolish the monarchy, execute the king, and establish a republic. Those were the basic choices available. Uh, Even when it was as stark as this, um, the majority of the high command of the New Model Army were unwilling to take that final, final step. And even though Henry Arton and Cromwell had bitterly opposed this conclusion when it was expressed at Putney, they turned to the levellers um, and engaged them essentially in a political block, which then carries through, uh, then carries through the revolution. The petitioning campaign of late uh, 1648 is the biggest uh, that the levellers ever undertake. And many, many other petitions in the New Model Army are modelled on the so-called large uh, petition. And it's in the middle of this that there's a funeral for Thomas Rainsborough, who's killed by a royalist raiding party, which becomes a huge sort of pro-revolutionary demonstration. And the day after, the very day after, Arton and John Lilburn uh, sit down with other independents, Cromwellians and other levellers, in a meeting in Nags Head in London and decide, okay, we're going to go for it, essentially. We're going to push this thing through uh, to the end. When it happens, as I say, the Levellers wanted a a much more democratic republic and the Cromwellians were uh, happy with uh, removing the threat of counter-revolution and the king and establishing their own power and rule, essentially, through through the army. At this point, even though, and this is, shows you how fast things always change in a revolution, despite the political block of the autumn, in the new year, when Charles is killed at the end of January, uh, the Cromwellian authorities now move very, very quickly to attempt to disband and crush in Burford and in other places, in the Oxford Mutiny and in other places, the Leveller, the Leveller movement. And they do. They effectively, they effectively manage that. Um, the levellers themselves take a variety of paths on from that. Lilburn never gives up. He's driven into exile on two occasions. He's put on trial for his life on two occasions and defeats the jury. Uh, and the juries come to his defence. Um, I have to say they were all drinking in the Whalebone pub and uh, composing their verdict before they went to the final trial, which the Whalebone pub was an old leveller meeting place. So it looks rather as if Lilburn had managed to fix the jury at his... <laughs> trial. At the first one, he simply 
convinced them, I think, by rhetoric in the court in the courtroom. Um, but he never gave up. Uh, he converted to uh, being a Quaker at the very last <laughs> moment and died and was uh, buried in Bedlam Churchyard, where they're currently excavating at Liverpool Street. At Liverpool Street now, uh, others. Um, they were like brilliant splinters, really. Uh, many of them, Lana was still printing Gerard Wynne Stanley, the diggers pamphlets in the, in the 15, in the 16, in the 1650s. Very few of them actually gave up, but they were no longer a coherent collective body of people any longer. I'm fascinated by the other end of this, um, where this movement came from. I mean, it, it came from the Dutch, um, sort of principality, well, they weren't principalities, were they? Um, so, did any of this leak to any other parts of Europe? I mean, can you kind of enlarge on how all this happened and why it happened to England and, mm. and, and so on? Um, well, it, there was, a, there was, there were links with the Dutch Republic because the only other place that was a republic was the, was the Netherlands. So there was a, a link with the Protestant churches. That's the place where the underground printing, where the printing took place and was illegally imported before that. There's very strong links with, um, with the Americas, with New England, uh, because in the 11 years of the personal rule, um, uh, where the authority of the monarchy and the authority of Archbishop Lord in the church was persecuting nonconformist um, uh, religious figures. There's very large numbers of Cromwell himself thought of emigrating to New England, didn't in the end, but very many people who thought like him did. And especially from London, especially from Coleman Street, the r- radical religious pre- uh, preachers in Coleman Street organized kind of um, whole tranches of people to go and live in, in New England. The interesting thing is, as soon as the Civil War starts, they start coming back. So uh, the Rainsborough family, Thomas Rainsborough yeah. that, you, that you mentioned, uh, they were married into the family of John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts. His son, uh, Stephen Winthrop, um, was in Thomas Rainsborough's uh, regiment. Uh, William Rainsborough, Thomas's younger uh, brother, um, had been a New Englander and comes back and fights. Um, uh, when Rainsborough comes back, his regiment are uh, officered uh, to a very, very high degree by returning New Englanders. Uh, Hugh Peter, the sort of main preacher and Cromwellian, you know, of the New Model Army, is a returning New Englander. And all the time, you find some of the most radical people in the New Model Army have returned from uh, from uh, from New England and. Uh, again, when the revolution is defeated, um, uh, Wally and Goff, two of um, uh, two of the major generals uh, at the time of the of the restoration of the monarchy, flee uh, to New England, and there's this brilliant story of them uh, suddenly appearing out of hiding, out of nowhere, and protecting one of the New England communities from an Indian raid using the military skills that they'd acquired in the New Model Army. Edward Sexby, who was a key figure in the Levellers, was sent off by Cromwell um, to uh, establish uh, in uh, in France, um, um, Bordeaux, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and the red flag, by the way, enters uh, history in the, in Bordeaux under a rising where um, uh, Sexby translated the agreement of the, of the people into French and distributed it. Um, mm-hmm. If you read the book about who built America, you'll find that in the American Revolution, there are in the backwoods of America, there are uh, mothers christening their sons Oliver. 
uh, in tribute to Oliver Cromwell. So it, it cascades on uh, into the American and French revolutions very definitely. And, and in terms of literature, too, you've also got literary figures like John Milton and Andrew Marvel. Um, Marvel particular, particularly has a huge influence in continental Europe, especially in um, the Low Countries. Um, and he's a, an MP and a parliamentarian who, at any rate, starts out as a radical that retrenches a bit under Cromwell, but a lot of people did because they weren't comfortable with the protectorate. Um, another issue, though, that we haven't really mentioned is this question of radical Protestantism as really the seedbed of all this kind of thinking, which is why places like Holland and the New World colonies is so important for this kind of political thinking. The converse of that, which is also important to say, is that it's very, very difficult for these political ideas to penetrate the Catholic states of Europe, with which England has very little to do by then, because it's been an established Protestant nation for so long, and has seen itself as opposing basically the Habsburg hegemony, um, which is where it makes its Dutch friendships because they're trying to fight off the Habsburgs as well. This is Philip II, the, the ruling house of Spain, and later you know, a much wider swathe of Spanish conquest. It's very, very difficult for these English ideas to make their way into the heartlands of Catholic Europe, but they do make their way into France as part of the French's own um, Huguenot traditions, because there are so many Huguenot refugees in London, also very relevant. Huguenot refugees who start the silk industry in Spitalfields, mm. it's very dominated by Huguenots. Anyone who's read William Shakespeare's play, he has a hand in it called Sir Thomas More, will also realise there were riots against the evil Huguenot refugees mm. because there were so many of them, and they had funny foreign names, so you see. But they were also hugely influential in bringing low countries ideas of republicanism um, and dreams of republicanism to England. So it was a constant process of interchange in Europe's Protestant communities that more or less excluded Europe's Catholic communities. Uh, you mentioned at the start of the talk that you respectfully had differences as to the origins of the um, uh, movements. Uh, I, I may not be appropriate, but would you like to... Um Highlight. You just want to see a bit of a fight, don't you? I know. Yeah. Would you like to highlight those differences and explain your different uh, uh, courses of thinking as to how you reached your conclusions? Well, I'm not. I'm not quite so sure. Um, we, we do have because my point is this: really, not some. Some historians worry that the the kind of origin of the levelers is kind of backdated too far. Uh, that's not really, uh, and, and that's a reasonable concern to have. Um, uh, but it's not my case that they existed uh, kind of um, before. I think they existed a little bit before the name, and that's usual. You know, yeah. it's it's usual that a a kind of uh, organization or association or a political movement exists before its enemies, mm -hmm. as was the case here. Yeah, um, um, either either Cromwell or Ireton, or possibly Charles the First never quite sure who, named them levellers at the time of the Putney, uh, 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 the Putney debates as an insult, as a way of saying, oh, these guys, well, as Cromwell said in the Putney debates, this tends to anarchy. Yeah. Go down this mm -hmm. road, as Ireton said, you go down this way, you're going to abolish all property. Now, actually, they didn't want to abolish all property, not least because they were small property owners themselves. So they mm -hmm. weren't really interested in that. They were interested in political democracy. But the insult was, mm -hmm. it, uh, well, uh, well, you know, Ireton's, uh, Ireton's, Spelt it out brilliantly. He said, "If you if you give people the vote, 
they'll use the vote to take away your property. That's the problem with this. That was the problem with it. And, Rather and, telling, isn't yes, it? And, and, that, and, and there's a problem we're still grappling with. So, um, so my, my case is really that, they, uh, that the figures that came to be the Leveller organisation were associating uh, in organised ways uh, as part of a much broader parliamentary spectrum of opposition, but spe- with certain specific ways and thoughts, which they probably didn't, and the other people in parliamentary opposition probably didn't realise at an early stage made them any different from the rest of them. But over time, it became clear that both that method of association and the ideas that they were developing were making them a very specific and radical element of the parliamentary opposition, which at a decisive point became an organised uh, group in itself, identified as such to each other and to their, and to their enemies. And it's that process of emergence out of the gathered churches, out of the close association around illegal print that I'm interested to, to trace. Yeah, see, here's our problem, because I don't really disagree with very much of that. So I don't think you can have your fun fun. <laughs> um, I think the only thing I would say, that, and it's really just a nuance of difference, is I tend to think that the level of movement only really got founded by being identified by its opponents first. That is, when people sort of started to stigmatise people with certain sets of ideas, typically in pamphlet writings, as levelers, and there were, yeah, there were cheeky ballads about it, um, even sort of libelous sexual innuendo ballads about it. It's at that point that the leveler said, well, maybe we're those guys, mm. actually. So it, it's somewhat like, you know, like the use of the word queer now, which has been kind of picked up by the gay community and sort of taken back from what were originally their persecutors. Um, I think that's pretty much mm. what it was. So, so they didn't initially, I think, see themselves as a coherent movement. Now, my only point would be, I think that it's really important to keep stressing those gathered churches. Mm. These movements didn't arise initially just as secular political movements. Mm. Some of the levelers were almost entirely secular. Wallen, for mm. example. Um, but the majority of them were actually coming from a political background that was largely about churches. And let's not forget that to this day, the basic rock-bottom integer of the English political constituency is the parish. This is still the case. Your constituencies in which you vote are basically amalgams of parishes. So people, ordinary people's political experience was actually experience of church attendance and being sidesmen in their churches and sitting on those parish councils that J.K. Rowling is the only one who's still interested in, those parish councils. But they were an experience of what it was like to make collective decisions, what sorts of things go into collective decision making. How do we choose which lecturer we want to invite to our independent church? How do we decide whether we want to accept this vicar with his silly Laudian ideas and demands of statues of the Virgin Mary? How do we make those kinds of choices? Because what happened was they discovered their own political agency through making those kinds of choices in the era of religion. And when we talk about John Lilburn, we really have to talk about the fact that he was energized by his faith, mm. much as John Bambanian was his whole life. And these people saw themselves as doing God's work. They didn't largely see themselves as doing work for themselves. And mm. that was one of the things that kept them going in difficult times and in difficult moments. Mm. Is that different enough for you? <laughs> Maybe in the front I do, do so agree with you what you've just been saying, uh, what you were saying very earlier um, about psalm singing around the campfires. I mean, that for me has always been the sort of 
the beginning of it all yeah, somehow. And, and I think it continued to be. And, and I think the levelers needed the campfires and the yeah, army exactly. um, uh, in order to, to get their ideas out. Mm. But, but the campfires were there, in a sense, first. Yeah, and what I remain fascinated by in terms of, of the after story um, is, for me, somehow it all ended with the eclipse of John Lambert and the and the refusal to finance the army at the end of 1656, I think, 57. Yeah. And that, for me, is the end, the real end of it all. Because after that, somehow, yeah. it was just Cromwell pretending to be a king and yeah. why not have the proper one back somehow. I mean, I, I, I don't know if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Mm. It, it didn't completely end. It didn't entirely go away, is the mm. optimistic thing. The restoration didn't end dissent. There was still dissent. For one thing, there was still Protestantism. There was still radical Protestantism. However much Charles II would have loved there not to be radical Protestantism, it's very hard to stamp out people's religious views as one of the lessons of history. And therefore, there were still those seedbeds of radical sects. And there was also still an underground press. People were mm. by then very good mm. at getting what they needed to say heard, as well as radical presses. By then, there were radical manuscript mm. writers. Mm. People actually went back to transcribing pamphlets and seditious poems by hand because it was harder to detect handwriting copies than it was to detect presses. I mean, a press is big, whereas I can make you a handwritten copy of a seditious pamphlet you know, probably in four hours mm. um, and distribute it that way. So, I mean, in that way, it never really went away anything like as much as, it, as people would have wanted it to. And you mm. can tell that because of the subsequent events of 1688. Mm. No, I mean, in the, the final chapter that uh, I've got in the book about uh, um, Lieutenant Colonel John Reed, um, it, I, I've included it partly because it, it was a very interesting um, character to, to find and to find out more about. It's relatively little known. Um, and he was he was governor of Poole and defended and hid some of the levellers that fled from the Oxford mutiny at the end of the thing. And he was eventually removed by a combination of Cromwellian and Presbyterian, independent and Presbyterian um, town worthies, the rich of the, of the town of Poole, removed him as governor for his support for, and this is the interesting thing, uh, levellers and a Baptist preacher that he wanted to appoint in place of the nominee of the, of the rich of the town. He was essentially dri driven out, and then he went back to his home in South Wiltshire, in Porton in South Wiltshire, founded Porton Baptist Church, which to this day is, is still there, and he and the, the graves of his family are still in the dissenters' churchyard in Porton. And he was jailed at the Restoration for refusing to apologise for his role yeah. in the Revolution and subsequently persecuted because he was a, a nonconformist Protestant. Yeah. And so it, yeah. so it, pre, it predates the Revolution. And, and here you've got post to... Postdates it too. And yeah. postdates it. And, mm. you know, when, when E.P. Thompson said mm. that the English working class owes more to Methodism than it does to Marxism... Um, Slightly overstated. Yes. But it has something yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Far be it from me to, to endorse that view. But, 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 but the persistence of nonconformist religion, he's absolutely right about it. I'd absolutely. say he underplayed yeah. the persistence of Marxism, but we can do that another time. Um, but, but, uh, but and the important thing about the gathered churches is this. It, it, the church wasn't just a, a religious body. It's a state body. It performed in the 1640s uh, many of the functions that are now performed by the civil service, the education 
uh, hierarchy, the education institutions of the society, and the press. You had to go to church. You had to go to your parish church. If you didn't go to your parish church, you were fined or ultimately imprisoned. And if you started doing this business of setting up a gathered church where just your fellow dissenting believers, that was hunted down and you were persecuted. That's why they fled to New England. So to be oppositional religiously was to be oppositional politically. I mean, you know, if there is the best, the, the best ever short definition of the English Revolution is the definition given by James VI, James I, where he said, no bishop, no king. Yeah. You get rid of the, the religious hierarchy, you're going to start getting rid of the, the, the political hierarchy as well. Yeah, quite right. Um, can you say a little bit more about the, disco- about the discovery of the Putney debates uh, manuscripts? And do you think that, Maybe this is another question, but do you think if they hadn't, if they'd been known about earlier, we would know more about the levelers now? And um, so might there yeah. be more? Might there yeah. be more fiction about the levelers now? Yeah. Well, I mean, is, think so? uh, it, well, I'll let, I'll let you ask whether whether we'd known more. I mean, I'll tell the story. It's such a you brilliant. Story. It's such a brilliant. It's, it's such a brilliant. It, you it, tell it, the story it is, a, it is a fantastic yeah. story. Um, so. Uh, William Clark is is a clerk. Uh, he's a clerk to um, New Model Army, um, working under John Rushworth, the Secretary to Fairfax. And he takes down the Putney debates as they happen, and he takes them down in shorthand. And we owe shorthand uh, to the Puritans, because in the Puritan church, especially in the gathered churches, um, the important thing is not the word of God as mediated by archbishops and bishops and priests, it is a much more direct relationship between the worshipper and God. And therefore, the sermon and the remarks given by the preacher, who may be elected, um, are taken down and discussed, fervently discussed afterwards. But to take them down, you can't take them down in longhand, so they invent shorthand in order to take down the sermon. And Clark has got his own, for, he's, he's actually, he's just, he's, he's got a, he's recently acquired shorthand um you know it's not a standard version it's not Pittman. so and he's taking down these debates um as the restoration comes along it's probably not a good idea to hang on to he doesn't hang on to them very long afterwards does he um and so he he dumped some of them he transcribes into longhand others are still left in shorthand and he dumps a lot of it in Worcester College yeah. in Oxford. He wants to give it to some other college, but they don't have it, do they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Actually, yeah. So, the, so anyway, whatever. The, uh, Diane's probably more familiar with the rivalry between Oxford okay. Colleges than I am. But anyway. I ends, shall say little on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> it ends up in Worcester College. And it's not discovered until H.A. Um, Pottinger, the, the librarian, tells Charles Firth, one of the great historians of the English Revolution, that maybe you want to have a look at these dusty old thingies in... And first discovers them and publishes them um, in the 1890s. So from after the Restoration to the 1890s, these key, absolutely central debates about the English Revolution just lie there in Worcester College and nobody knows about them until first, until first publishes them. And as I understand it from Francis Henderson, who's has work on it, there are still... There are some more boxes of these. Yes, that's right. Are still, Actually, I was just going to mention that. Are still there in shorthand. I think they had to get the 
the Bletchley uh, Park code breakers yeah. to break the the shorthand mm -hmm. to publish some more of them. And I still I, I don't think we've got a lot of them yet, no, have I we? I think that's exactly yeah. right. Actually, I was just going to say that because we don't know what fresh revelations yeah. we might be treated to because actually stuff that's in manuscript and stuff that's in code is very, very important in the Civil War period yeah. as a whole. I was speaking earlier about the security advantages of manuscripts rather than printed books, and there's still, I would suspect, really crucial sources mm. that have yet to be discovered on the royalist side as well as the parliamentarian. Mm. But yeah, you're 100% right. I like to think that if we'd known about these texts from the beginning, it would have changed our political reflexes. That, of course, is why we didn't know about them from the beginning. Mm. It was in nobody's interest to tell us about those texts mm. from the beginning. And it's an extraordinary piece of luck, or as the levels might have said, divine providence, <laughs> that they've survived as they have. Because, as I said, you know, nobody, nobody was going to be encouraging about them. I mean, I absolutely don't know why we don't have more novels about this period either. Mm. I mean, you could say it's because it's complex, but mm. it's so mm. terrifically mm. dramatic. Mm. And the only novels we ever get are ones about Charles II as a prince escaping. Mm. That's it. Um, it's as though that's the only event that people ever want to write about. Very curious. So go away and write some. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Question for Diane. At the beginning, you alluded to the lack of monuments to the Civil War. I think it's because, as you say, it's a, an intangible period, um, something we can't get to grips with. I took my uncle and aunt on a walk around the city, and they're educated people. My uncle went to grammar school, and they've got degrees. And the, the Civil War period wasn't taught. It stopped. Charles I dissolves Parliament, and then suddenly you've got the Restoration. Yeah, the that's whole thing's exactly white. What it is. It's white. It's a, it's a whitewash of history. Yeah, Secondly, right. have you been to um, St Mary's Putney and seen the display yes. there? I have, I have, and I was privileged to actually speak in St Mary's Putney. Probably my favourite of all the talks I've ever given to the public because of speaking in St. Mary's Putney. Um, and it was a huge audience. It was actually a commemorative event mm. that specifically commemorated the Putney debates. Um, yes, it's an extraordinary memorial, but generally it's spotty. It's spottier than I would like it to be. And it's quite common for my students to come up to do English degrees at Oxford and as you said about your in-laws, not even know that there was such a thing as the English Civil War. That's actually why I wrote my book, because mm. I wanted to write mm. an accessible book for people who mm. didn't know anything going into the subject. Um, because I met so many people who didn't know anything at all. And, and I kind of hope that maybe there might be change in future, that there might um, come to be an awareness. And the reason mm. I hope this is because I have a 16-year-old daughter doing A-level history, mm. and they've started with the English Civil War. Mm. So instead of starting with the Tudors and Stuarts and then giving the English Civil War a week, they've started with three months on the English Civil War. And from what she's told me, it's all told from the parliamentarian point of view. Mm. So I've got a sudden surge of hope that things might improve in generations to come. Here's the, here's the thing, though. It's not part of the national curriculum. Yeah. But... Uh, if you apply, if you're a foreign national uh, <laughs> taking the citizenship test in this country, there are more questions on the 17th century than there are on the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So I gather from this that uh, if you want to become a citizen of this country from somewhere else, you need to know about our democratic traditions. If you're born here and brought to school here, you don't really need to know that. <laughs> it's in your blood, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, the book is obviously meant to um, 
resonate to, to people today, uh, particularly in this rather, I don't know what you call it, traumatic, depressing year of 2017, where there's been quite a few uh, setbacks, uh, including yesterday. Um, so apart from try not giving up or failing better, are there any specific lessons, both positive and negative, that we can learn from the level of revolution? Um, for me, and as I, as I said earlier, I, I, I focused it on a group of people who were political organisers. And I think there's a, a, an age-old thing here, really, that um, ordinary people, ordinary people in the 17th century, ordinary people today, they simply don't have access uh, to wealth or to power or to the media or to weapons or to any of the normal panoply of what people do when they rule. They only really have two things. Um, one is their numbers. There's far more of them than there are on the other side. And the other is organisation. And the truth of the matter is the numbers aren't any good without the organisation. And the levelers understood that. They were in the business of organising agitating and mobilizing that's what they did now there are a zillion differences between our time and theirs um, and you can learn as much from the differences as you can from the similarities um, and that's part of learning how history works and it's very important to have that approach to it but the great similarity is this that if you want to change something and you aren't part of the wealthy elite when you get up in the morning, you've got to find other people who want to do it with you. And you find that through meetings and pamphlets and petitions and organizing and taking subs off people and calling demonstrations and getting things done. And that's what they did. They were the first people in this country to do that as a mass popular organization. And that is worth remembering. Can I do a smaller tip? Start with the people around you. That was what was great about the campfire. Don't, don't wait until some brilliant politician approaches you waiting for you to download your views at them. Don't set up a blog. Start by talking to the people you work with, the people you're at school with, the people that you're standing in the bus stop with, waiting for the bus again. Mm. Um, start by talking to those people. We English are terrible at that, absolutely terrible at talking to the people around us. Yeah, it really takes a major disruption. Like a train has to be stopped for 20 minutes before an English person will stand on the person next to them and say, oh, that's a bit much, isn't it? Um, but, you know, we could all do a bit more of that because that's actually how the level of movement was forged. Um, and esprit de corps comes easily at a time of crisis, a crisis like the crises that we're facing this year, this Annas Horribilis of 2016, um, it seems depressing, but it's also an opportunity because it means that instead of just going about our daily lives and forgetting that there's politics and forgetting that we're being ruled and forgetting about the structures that impede us, we're forced to think it through. We're forced to think it over. And so the next step is to start talking to each other about it. Thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time for everybody, but there is time to buy the book and hopefully you'll be able to stick around for a little longer. Yep. Um, yep. Ladies and gentlemen, John Reese and Diane Perkins, thank you so much. Thank Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.